0: Accessibility is the process of creating applications that are usable by people with various abilities and situations. As web developers, it's important that we design and build our applications to be usable by everyone. So in today's episode, we're joined by Wendy Fox, the design systems lead at LogMeIn to discuss nine common pitfalls of application accessibility and what you can do to fix them. Let's get started.
1: Welcome to the Ladybug Podcast. I'm Kelly. I'm Allie. And I'm Emma, and we're debugging the tech industry.
0: Vonage is a cloud communications platform that allows developers to integrate voice, video, and messaging into their applications using their communication APIs. Whether you're wanting to build video calls into your app, create a Facebook bot, or build applications on top of programmable phone numbers, you'll have all the tools you need. Formerly known as Nexmo, Vonage has you covered for all API communications projects. Sign up for an account at nexmo.dev ladybug and use promo code LDBUG10 for 10 euro of free credit. Again, that's nexmo.dev ladybug and use code LDBUG10 for 10 euro of free credit. Hey Kelly, have you heard about this cool tool called AWS Amplify? Tell me about it. It's a suite of tools and services that enables developers to build full-stack serverless and cloud-based web and mobile apps. You get to use whichever framework or technology you want on the front end.
1: That sounds cool. Will it help me get up and running with things like hosting? Yeah. Authentication? You betcha. Manage GraphQL? Totally. How about serverless functions, APIs, machine learning, chatbots, file storage? Yes to everything! Amplify is built especially in a way to enable traditionally front-end developers like
0: yourself, Kelly, to be successful because you can use your existing skill set to build real world, full stack apps that in the past would require deep knowledge around backend, DevOps, and scalable infrastructure. The Amplify console also allows you to use a GitHub repository to deploy to a globally available CDN with CI and CD built in. It's super cool. Where can I learn more? You can learn more about building applications with Amplify at awsamplify.info slash ladybug. Again, that's awsamplify.info slash ladybug. So thank you so much for joining us, Wendy. I'm super excited to have you here because for everyone listening, Wendy and I have been friends for quite quite like a few years now because uh, we worked together at LogMeIn when I was uh, living in Germany.
2: It's good to, good to be here. First time on a podcast. First oh, time it? with you. I'm still saying serious. So, super so excited. excited. Yeah, you've, you. never,
0: you've never seen the serious side of me before. Yeah. Um, but I would love to uh, open the conversation just by having you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your experience working on accessibility.
2: Yeah, sure. So um, my education is all over the place, so it's always a bit fun and complicated to explain where I come from, but I'll I'll give it a shot. So um, nowadays, I'm a senior UX designer and lead of our design system and pretty much our accessibility efforts at, at LogMeIn and the BU I work at, which is like communication and collaboration. So I actually started out with applied linguistics, which usually is just a nice term for becoming uh, an interpreter or a um, translator. And I learned a lot about how communication works and did my PhD in um, improving subtitles for audiences such as hard of hearing or deaf audiences. So that was super interesting and got me actually interested in, yeah, understanding the visual communication side as well. So Try to um, yeah learn more about that at a um, German diploma, which is pretty much like a master's degree in communication design. And after some time as a researcher and teacher at university, I really wanted to get out into the field. So I went to an agency that some of the good old groundwork, visual design, web design, um, learned a lot about web accessibility there. We built a lot of websites where we really had like clear client uh, requests to build like make it accessible to all their users and customers and know it logged me in being a researcher and designer i try to really push accessibility to not be like a, a feature that we add but just a yeah approach that everything we build is usable and accessible for all our users and yeah that's pretty much i guess where i'm at now and <laughs> I love that.
1: I love also that both you and Emma have worked together. I kind of just want to turn this into an episode of you telling me all of the weird things that Emma's done. But I guess we should stay on topic. We don't have enough time <laughs> for that. So why should we care about accessibility?
2: Oh, there are so many things. And usually it would be great if you could stop right after saying because it's the right thing to do. Right. You just want to say it's the right thing to do. I don't need to give you Examples like um, stop actively excluding people. It's as I said, not about adding features. It's it's a civil right in in the states, also in Germany. It's um, if you look at I think WHO says it's about one billion people nowadays that live with at least a um, basic disability or something minor, and that's about 15% of everyone around on the world. So. It's not like a tiny target group. It's like everyone, especially if you look at aging population, it's more and more people that might not even be visible in some statistics. Um, of course, you can say it's important because you can minimize legal risk or it just improves best practices. It improves your SEO. It improves respons- responsiveness, usability, but it just benefits everyone. So if you look at like guidelines and stuff, most of those, I'd say 80, 90%, they just benefit every user they are not specific to all that that audience that might be blind or that audience that has issues with hearing it's just building really inclusive and well-designed usable products and that gives me like back to like going back to that thing it's just the right thing to do and It should
1: not even be a question, right? I think you made a really important point there because I feel like we always default to accessibility being about blind users. And that's absolutely not the case. Yes, there's, oh. Yeah, yeah, I think people forget that it's, it can be a
0: physical disability where you know this could be temporary. It could be permanent. You might have a permanent physical disability that requires using a keyboard only, or if you don't have a mouse or the ability to use a trackpad, like that's a temporary disability. Um, you know, if your arm is in a cast, that is considered a temporary disability. Um, and then we even get into cognitive disabilities, and the this affects things you wouldn't even think about. Uh, one of the tips, you know, later in the episode, we'll discuss a little more, but. There are users who have difficulty remembering what tasks that they are trying to complete. So if you're popping up modals or toasting everywhere, or if you uh, are using your placeholder text as a label and they're typing and the placeholder is gone, they can't remember what they're doing. So I'm looking forward to kind of diving a little bit deeper into
2: some of the common pitfalls
0: web developers make and how we can fix them. And that is not
2: even like specific to someone who has a disability. Like, didn't that like not ever happen to you that you start filling in a form? And you have no idea what that field was about because your focus is all over the place. You have like 20 tabs open. So, so many things are just common usability and good user experience design. And you can go even, even further. And yeah, there's like permanent disabilities and temporary, but there's even this random stuff like you want to use your device outside in the bright sunlight. So dark mode or high contrast mode are super useful or like... I don't know how it is for you, but when I, um, I'm on a plane and I watch a movie, I'm sometimes so exhausted of having the ear- ear parts in. So I just like watch it with subtitles and don't deal with noise at all. It's too exhausting. So there are all these great innovations and things that we already benefit from that came from accessibility features, so to say. So mm. yeah, they just scale. It's just like all these things, they scale to population and we, we all benefit.
0: Yeah. I was watching like the iOS 14 release and they were talking, there's a lot of new accessibility features that came out, one of which is like the back tap on the phone that you can set to different controls. And it's like, you know, I heard people saying like, oh, it's an accessibility feature, but it's useful for everyone. It's like, well, you know,
1: let's make our web apps or all apps usable for everyone. So let's talk through some specific types of accessibility, because I think I, I personally, I'm very much like a, a keyboard navigator whenever I can. Um, I, I use uh, the mail app, Superhuman, because I can do everything with keyboard shortcuts. But there's more to it, obviously, than, than just that for types of accessibility.
0: Yeah, I think um, the three biggest that we as web developers need to concern ourselves with when we're physically coding something are screen reader, accessibility, high contrast mode, and keyboard navigation. And I would say high contrast mode is one that people don't necessarily learn about, um, but it's definitely important. Um, And I think, I don't want to talk too deeply about them all right now, because I think that in these next nine tips that we discuss, they'll pop up in conversation, but those are generally the three that we as web developers need to be concerned with.
1: Where do you think motion falls in that list? Ooh, good one. I just, I think about it all the time because I'm constantly trying to convince clients against using like parallax scrolling and things like that?
0: So I think a lot of this comes from the design side. So, you know, we could do many hours worth of work or podcasting about all types of accessibility from design inception through testing. Um, Motion to me is something that developers typically work on with designers. And I think that's something that um, we we definitely should be talking about that would be a really cool episode to talk about design accessibility. (laughs) Um, I personally think it comes a combination or collaboration between design and development.
2: That makes sense. And it ties back in with like um, awareness and empathy and being aware of what kind of disabilities are out there, what kind of um, requirements are out there from users. So if a designer starts thinking about motion at the same time, they should be aware that, okay, someone might get sick from this effect or someone might feel um, nauseous or If you start adding stuff like flashing lights, this might even induce seizures. So it's all about being aware and empathetic and knowing like, okay, even though I have this this great motion I want to add, I'm also thinking about the version if someone disables that in their browser or on their native system, allow them to experience my product or website without motion sickness. Definitely.
0: So I want to transition us. We're going to start talking about these tips now. But before we get into that, I wanted to find two different things. The first is WCAG. First of all, there are a lot of acronyms. Is that how you pronounce in it? Regards to- or is that like a very Swedish thing to do to just pronounce the acronym? No, <laughs> no, no, no. People say WCAG. Um, at least I do. Like we did at IBM when I was there. Um but um, there are ironically a lot of acronyms in accessibility, which in and of themselves can be uh, inaccessible, especially when you see the, sh- the truncation of accessibility, the long word from Uh, from that to A11Y, because there are 11 letters between A and Y. um, I just find it a little ironic. But WCAG is the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, and they're published by the the WAI, or the Web Accessibility Initiative, of the World Wide Web Consortium. They basically govern all the standards for what is accessible, how accessible is it. You might hear AA, you might hear AAA. Um, These are different levels of accessibility that may or may not need to be legally met. Um, ARIA is what we as developers need to be very familiar with. And we're going to talk about this in our first tip. ARIA stands for Accessible R- Rich Internet Applications. It's really hard. I need to slow down. Um, <laughs> but they are attributes that you can add to your HTML to make it more semantic for screen readers. They're not just attributes. They're also states um, and whatnot. This is going to bring us into tip number one. Let me kick this off and then uh, I'll see how Wendy feels about uh, this one because this is a big fight with developers. Using semantic HTML. Semantic HTML are... um HTML elements. And if you haven't listened to our episode on HTML, um, go do that. It's already published from this season. But essentially, semantic means there's some underlying meaning. So I, as a developer, can look at a a tag or a screen reader can look at an HTML tag and tell you what it's used for. So this could be a main or a body tag or head or a header, things of that nature. The non-semantic elements are going to be things like div and span that are generally just wrappers you can attach things to. And we see a lot of that with frameworks like react there are instances where you need to build something for example design systems wendy you know you build custom components and often we can't use the native html elements and uh, a s- select a dropdown select is one example where if you want to style uh, a select drop down you actually can't use the native html element at the moment so you need to use a combination of unordered lists and list items um, but unfortunately what that means is our screen reader would go to that and say oh this is a list which technically it is but it's It's also a form input, and so ARIA comes into play here. With ARIA roles, we can actually tell a screen reader, hey, this is actually a select dropdown, Um, and it's expanded. We can give it its state. We should be hooking up state. So if it's expanded, it needs an ARIA expanded attribute and things of that nature. Wendy, I'm sure you can attest to the... I don't know the right word for this, but often this is one of the biggest culprits of inaccessible applications is, you know, developers, especially with React and other popular libraries and frameworks, you see a lot of divs floating around and not a whole lot of ARIA attributes.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. You're you're perfectly right. And I feel like it's one of the, the main goals in making something accessible is just like make it readable. And readable, in this case, means for screen readers, for example, is that, at every point, wherever you are on a website or in a product, uh, it's, the person using it has to know what this is, how to interact with it, what's the status, what can I do, also being warned, what could happen next. And you can easily assure this with just using really semantic HTML. So yeah, I think like you want your user to know where they are, what they can do, and what happens. And if you don't do that, they they will get lost, they will get frustrated, they might stop using it. and um, That's something you don't want to happen. And that's, again, kind of scales to everyone, right? You want to know what happens when you interact with something on the page. And if you imagine every website was just like a big block of text, then you don't know what's going to happen when you click on it or interact you're not going to use it. You're going to leave and find something else that is actually usable. Like
0: uh, people using assistive technology and screeners aren't just sitting there tabbing through your UI. They actually have shortcuts to to get to landmark regions. So we can think of like a page as having an anatomy. It has a head, it has a body, it has a main content area, it has navigation. And these are all major landmark roles that People who use screen readers don't sit and tab through. They actually have keys that will take them there. But if you're using divs for everything, they can't do that. And they actually imagine trying to drive on a road and not know it, like not being able to see what's in front of you. Like how horrible would that be?
2: Also dangerous. Yeah. Or imagine reading a newspaper and you have to read the content of every article. And usually you just want to start skipping through the headlines. And that's pretty similar, I guess.
0: That's a way better analogy than mine. Yeah. <laughs>
2: but <laughs> Question.
1: Didn't semantic HTML replace some of the ARIA roles that used to exist and that semantic HTML is preferred? Okay.
0: Yeah, for sure. Like, they used to have, like, role equals main, but now they have a main tag. Right. Okay. Um, That's the other thing. Like, if you're using a semantic tag, and I've seen this done, like, you don't need to add an ARIA role unless the – which I don't know why you would do this. Like, you could technically have a semantic tag, like, main and set role equals Navigation, like, you can do that. And a screen reader will see that as a navigation element, but why would you? (laughs) Um, So my point is, if you're using a semantic element, um, use the right one, and you don't need to use role. It's just redundant.
1: That makes sense. All right, so let's go on to tip two, which is learn how to and when to visually hide content. So I'm going to cover one piece of this, and then hand it over. And that piece is, images must have alt tags. And one of my friends, Ilana Davis, Uh, basically explain this as your, your alt text or the the alt tag should be um, like you were describing something as if you were talking to somebody over the phone. So you're describing a certain item, a shirt you're wearing or your phone, whatever it might be, they cannot see it. So you need to be descriptive about what that thing actually is, as opposed to just saying phone.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally agree. And I think that's the also ties back into to being good at user experience design, being aware of what is what is decoration um, and what is relevant to be able to use the, the product or a page. And if an image has a clear meaning and a purpose, and this needs to be explained in a way where it's not just like, hey, there's a phone, but it's actually like, hey, this is the place where you click if you want, like, a, I don't know, have an incoming phone call
1: displayed mm-hmm.
2: or something like that. But then, of course, there's also like all these icons combined with text, where the text is already explaining what the icon is about, and then you just want the screen reader to skip it and not say, like, phone, phone. Um, right. and Yeah, so...
0: That's the just, other thing. Like I see this as a huge mistake, where I will see ARIA labels on everything. Okay, let me explain the difference between ARIA label, ARIA labeled by, and when you shouldn't be using them. Um, so first of all, if your image is decorative, so an icon next to a label, screen reader doesn't need to know about it necessarily because it's decorative, right? Um, And that's kind of what Wendy was just stating, I believe. Um, You need to use ARIA label if you have a, let's say you have a context menu and there are only icons. There's no text in the UI and it does some kind of action. You need to tell a screen reader, hey, here's the label. So like um, make a phone call, right? That might be an ARIA label for a phone icon that actually would execute a call when you click it. If you're... um, if your image has visible text in the UI and the image is relevant, at that point, that's where you use ARIA labeled by. And it just accepts the ID of the element that labels it. Um, this is very similar to described by as well if you need additional context. Um, but yeah, if, you're, if your icon is decorative, please, you don't need an ARIA label on it. Um, and also, just maybe try not to put icons as actions that don't have visible text in the UI. It's just bad for... Um, all users. (laughs) So
2: Yeah, definitely. There's so little icons and visuals that are shared across all cultures in the world. So you might think yourself, oh, this is like everyone uses it like that. And then you easily find a culture or area where it's not used in that context and super unclear. But something that just came to my mind that is, I think, also a good recommendation is to, to never think of users with disabilities as an isolated target group. They don't all sit in the same company and work together. They're usually spread everywhere and might be working with someone who is sighted so if there's something an icon or action where it is important or relevant what it looks like for example like starring something having a star as a favorite um, and there might be a situation where they talk about like a blind user and a sighted user um, and it might be uh, just common to say oh yeah use the star or click on the star Then, of course, you want to mention this is the thing that looks like a star. So never think of someone being isolated and they just sit in their dark room and tap through stuff and listen to it. They're interacting with people that might have other disabilities or multiple or Mm -hmm. none of them. So there's always this context of different people using the same interfaces, having the same experience, even though the access might be different.
0: Definitely.
2: Um,
0: There are two other... Issues that I've seen, and I've been a culprit of doing myself. Um, One is do not place code snippets inside of images. There's a beautiful website called Carbon. That allows you to create super nice code snippets and share them. But unfortunately, they're just static images. Um, Actually, I think you can download them as an SVG, in which case they would be more accessible. Um, But you should use something like GIST, which interacts with GitHub. So if you're trying to share code snippets, use GIST. It's also copyable uh, versus just having a static image. Um, And also, understanding how to visually hide an element without Removing it completely from your document object model is very important. Display none will actually remove your content from your accessibility tree. Um, and your accessibility tree, Wendy, do you, have you learned about this? Like, do you know what it is? I doubt <laughs> it. I think it's, I think it's basically like the DOM or like what gets constructed from your mm-hmm. HTML, but it's for blind users with assistive technology. And the accessibility tree looks a little bit different than the DOM. Um and so you know when you're using display none, just be aware no one's going to be able to access your content. If you want to visually hide something, so for here's an example. if you need an if you need a description, let's say um, and you don't want it to appear on the screen, but people using screen readers need some additional context. So you want to use ARIA described by to link to that text. Um, But you don't want it shown in your UI. Um, Some people might put display none on that. But screen readers have no access to that. So don't do that. Um, Instead, what you can do is you can play with your Z index. You can set it to be at the bottom of the stack. You can set opacity to none. You can set width and height to 0. All of those things combined will not remove it from your DOM. So it's still accessible, but it's just not visually shown.
1: Google has a pretty cool guide on the accessibility tree. It's it's not super long, but my favorite part is that they have a screenshot of Google from 1998. Nice. I
0: was a small child. Um let's uh let's shift. Let's talk about using aria again. Let's talk about updating state. Um why is it important to update state? Um, well, as visually sighted users, it's pretty apparent to us when a modal is open or when a dropdown menu is expanded. Um, but unfortunately, HTML, uh, These states don't get reflected to our users, our visually impaired users, or our blind users when they're interacting with our sites. And this is where ARIA is going to come back into play. Um, So, for example, if you've got a drop-down menu and you want to use the ARIA expanded attribute, and what you can do is just link it in with your state, link it in with your React state, and just have it um, update. You know, use a ternary and say, hey, if this is open, you know, ARIA expanded is true, Um, whatever you need to do to get that working, but that definitely needs to be, uh, apparent same with modals, ARIA visible is true. Very important.
2: Yeah. And I guess there's, um, just imagine something like we're in a, in a video call right now. So someone would start tabbing through the interface and reach like the mute unmute button or the share your camera button. You want to, um, ideally communicate, like, are you muted or not? Um, are you sharing your camera or not? That's also, I think a state that you would add as an attribute.
0: Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, building meeting software. You know, that's an important one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Tip number four. Don't disable focus dates unless you have clear alternative styling. I'm going to be entirely honest. This is something that I struggled with when I was earlier on in my development career because I was like, this outline's really ugly. I don't want it. But it serves a very important purpose. So if you're not restyling those elements to show some kind of focus state, you really, really need to keep that outline there.
2: Yeah, and that's something where we usually love to, to challenge designers because there's like, also with colors and contrast, they're often like, oh, but that's like, not enough. It doesn't leave enough choice and I cannot properly design. And usually I would reply with like, if you're a good designer, you can, you can design within limitations and you can come up with a design that looks great and is still usable. So I feel like that is one of those like, okay, that's a great challenge for you to come up with, with a focus state that looks really cool and really fits your product or website.
0: I love that straightforward approach. Like we have also recorded an episode this season on like uh cross cultural communication and i feel like me i have worked with um german colleagues long enough and other european cultures long enough to like you know understand this straightforward feedback but i can only imagine like being a designer working on a cross cultural team and and saying like oh you know wendy like i don't have enough colors like i <laughs> and just having you come up to me and be like if you're a good designer
1: you'll
0: get it done <laughs> i love it i love it so much but it's true it's absolutely true um yeah, this is something I have I have definitely done incorrectly for a long time. and the way I like to think about it is, um, if I were to come up to a web page and have focus somewhere on the web page, I should instantly be able to see where it is. You know, if someone came over and looked at my screen, they should be able to instantly tell you where my keyboard focus is, and if they can't, that's a huge problem and you need to fix it.
1: I I love to test my my dev team on that as well. So when they submit something new, I just sit there and I tab through the site and I'm like, do I know where I am? Can I see where I am? If not, you need to fix that.
0: Also, it has to be in a logical sequence. Um, We're going to talk about that uh, in just a a couple of tips, but yeah, so many things. And they all...
2: I've seen the worst, (laughs) yeah. Focus stayed all over the place. How do they do that? What does the code look like to produce an outcome like that? (laughs) I can tell you, I can tell you.
0: I'm going to tell you when we get to tip number six, because that's where we're going to talk about it. But let's take a really quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about color contrast. Hey Kelly, remember how we talked
1: about AWS Amplify at the beginning of this episode? You mean the suite of tools and services that enables developers to build full-stack serverless in cloud-based web and mobile apps?
0: Yeah, and you can use your framework or technology of choice on the front end. And since we're talking about React, we want to be sure to point out that there's a free React tutorial offered by Amplify. What will the tutorial show me? You'll learn how to build a React app and quickly get up and running with things like hosting, authentication, and managed GraphQL. What else? You'll also learn how to build serverless functions, APIs, machine learning, chatbots, and storage for files like
1: images, videos, and PDFs. That sounds great. It seems like Amplify is built in a way to enable traditionally front-end developers to be successful.
0: That's because you can use your existing skill set to build real world full stack apps that in the past would require deep knowledge around backend, DevOps, and scalable infrastructure. You can learn more about building applications with Amplify at awsamplify.info slash ladybug. Again, that's awsamplify.info slash ladybug.
1: Okay, so now let's go into tip number five, which is talking about color contrast. And I think we can go pretty deep into this, but it is, you know, not using a super light-colored text on a semi-light-colored background that's difficult to read. And I know this is not my area of expertise, but I know when it comes to, like, there are ratios that exist, and I think there are different scales where the ratios exist as well, depending on, like, the rating you want to go for. Am I making any sense whatsoever?
0: Yeah, but I think Wendy should explain this. Yeah,
1: that's why I'm just like, I can't do this.
0: Just so people know, when I was at LogMeIn, Wendy uh, created an accessible color palette. Um, Among other things, like you started the Accessibility Champions group within LogMeIn to champion accessibility. And one of your first big tasks was creating an accessible color palette. So I would love for you to explain this.
2: Yeah, so color is really a a complicated but super interesting topic. So the one thing you need to know is, color contrast there is some discussions around it if it's the best solution ever and some examples show that okay it's maybe there might be other measures out there but the, the fact is it's the one we have right now it's the one that's mentioned in guidelines and it's the one that can help you to build a more accessible product so the request is that there is a, a minimum ratio of luminosity between the two colors um, you use for the text and its background And um, usually you say you go like 3 to 1 or 4.5 to 1 is something for for small text that will make it readable. So yeah, the color manual that we built is actually just like, okay, here's the color blue. And if you want to use it for text, um, this is how you can combine it with white background or black background. So it really gives you a, a do's and don'ts list. And this is something that is just yeah, it can benefit users all over the place. So for designers, it's super important to check their designs. If they work without color at all, they should check if it works, um, if it gives enough contrast. Um, There's some cool um, plugins that you can use, for example, in Sketch or in browsers to check this. But the general goal is to just create enough contrast that it will not blur into like a mix of colors. So did that make any sense? (laughs) Yes.
0: Yeah, and I think um, I I'm so bad. This is the one area of accessibility I. I like this is the one I have the hardest time complying with because when I create my conference talk slides, I often want the prettiest color palettes with like pink and orange as my theme. And guess what? They're never contrast accessible. Um, and this is the one I just fight with all the time because you'll get a lot of arguments of people being like, well, you know, you can't create nice looking design. It's just going to be like black background and white text. <laughs> and like, um, yeah, I think you are going to have to uh give up a little bit of your design creativity depending upon, you know, how, like what you had envisioned, but what's the trade-off, right? Um, And there are a ton of different Chrome and I believe Firefox plugins that you can use to simulate grayscale and other visual impairments as well. Um, And additionally now, uh, at least Chrome, I think Firefox as well, they have built-in color contrast checkers. So if you're using... If you are checking out your UI and your Dev tools, um, they will actually tell you if it's AA or AAA compliant.
1: That's what I was looking for—the AA and AAA. That's what I was missing. Okay, so I think this is really something that that developers can champion as well. Because if it, I am not the one who's making the decisions on the colors, I receive a design from a designer, and yes, the design—the designer should know about this, but. At the end of the day, I'm the one who's building it. I need to push back on, on color contrast if it's not there.
2: Absolutely. There's uh, some great tools um, where you can check. And um, also for um, color blindness, there are some checkers where you can make sure that um, your great uh, green and red buttons are actually uh, being perceived as different colors and um, understandable. And of course, you shouldn't use color as a differentiator. So always have something else that explains the difference. It might be a label, um, for example. So. Yeah, I think just looking for the tools in your environment, they're definitely there. Might be a browser, Chrome, Firefox, or Sketch plugin, and just do a quick chat before you release anything.
0: For sure. Yeah, I feel like there are way more than nine tips that we could go into. But um, (laughs) if you want more than that, you'll have to follow Wendy on Twitter, which we'll plug at the end. Anyway, um, (laughs) no pressure. Let's move into tip six because we had touched a little bit on this earlier, but keyboard traps, um, the bane of my existence. So basically, if you are navigating through your UI with the tab key, at no point in your journey should you ever be trapped. Um, I see this a lot in modals. If you have a modal that's open, sometimes you'll be able to tab in and you will never be able to leave. And then it's just horrifying and you're stuck there. I live here now. <laughs> um, yeah, for real. Um, but the other thing is not only should you not have traps, but they need to be logically ordered. Um, so here's the real problem. Often we're using CSS Grid, CSS Flexbox, as we have different viewport sizes, as uh, you know, we're we're designing uh, mobile first and then we go to iPad size and then we do portrait iPad and whatever. We're getting these big displays. We're often shifting around our grid layout. And the issue with this is we are not actually changing the layout of the elements in our DOM. And so when we're navigating with our tab, it's going in logical order of the DOM order. And if your DOM order is not the same as your UI order because you've changed your CSS grid or your Flexbox layouts, It's not going to flow logically and your tab and your focus is going to jump all around the UI. And this is a huge problem. Um, I haven't been able to fix some of these issues that I've run into in the past. Um, But if you do want to create a logical order, you might want to look into tab index, which is an attribute that you can add onto your elements that explicitly will prevent uh, focus, but it can also logically correct them. So a tab index of negative one will... prevent focus from ever being set on an HTML element. Tab index of zero, I believe, is the default. And it'll basically say, um, focus this element in the logical order of where it falls in your DOM. Um, and Anything above a zero is going to flow in order of its numerical value. So, um, you know, a tab index of one will be focused on before a tab index of five. Um, so, just be really aware of that. Any f- native form elements, this is again why semantic HTML is so important, because any native form elements will automatically receive focus. Um, but yeah, if you're creating custom widgets, custom components, and you have a div wrapper, you might have to set explicit tab index on those. Just be very careful about that.
1: Especially with forms. I think that's the, like, it, I, I nothing is more infuriating when I'm filling out a form. I'm like, first name, address one, address two, last name, city. I'm just like jumping all around. I'm like, please, tab index is your friend. Please use it.
2: Yeah. And I think this, uh, especially keyboard accessibility, it's one of the easiest one to task. You don't need a plugin, you don't need to learn how to use a screen reader, you can just sit down and do it yourself and just check for, can I reach everything? Does the order make sense? And do I not get trapped? For sure.
0: Oh no, I've, I've tabbed and I can't get out. <laughs> oh my gosh, that Mom. should be the,
2: we need to create a meme.
0: I'm going to tweet that out from our account. Um, All right, let's talk about tip number seven. Oh, guess what? We talked about motion earlier, but guess what? I put this in our outline. So let's talk about animations. Um, Wendy, do you want to explain why motion can be so um, damaging to some of our users?
2: Yeah, so it um, became clearer and clearer that there are quite some people that can become motion sick just from um, things that are moving around. But it's not only that, it's also if you're struggling a bit with focus, uh, it might be because you're multitasking like crazy, but it might just be that you have a disability that makes it hard for you to focus on content. Um, you might prepare, uh, prefer to yeah, disable all motion on a website or in a product. And that's why you should always, um, whenever you implement um, motion, allow users to disable it. There are settings in a browser and native um, desktop that... I think they're just like, yeah, reduce motion on Mac, for example, um, and your animations and motions should just react to that and turn off if a user does not want them.
0: They can also be for performance reasons. Like if you're on an older device and your oh, yes. G- your graphics card or like your CPU or whatever you're using uh, cannot handle the that amount of action, I guess. I don't know the right word. Um, that can be harmful to users and they might want to disable that.
2: Yeah, or they are just bad and you don't want to see them. (laughs) Parallax.
0: I, okay, I'm sorry. When Parallax is done well, it's done really well and I will die on this hill.
1: But it shouldn't be done in every single section of your website as you're scrolling down a page. I'm going to redo my portfolio to be everything Parallax
0: and it's going to haunt you.
1: I'll just never visit your portfolio. Congratulations. (laughs) Oh, yeah, Wendy, that's a great idea. You should be able to scroll in all four directions.
2: (laughs) Oh,
0: my. It's like a VR experience in the browser.
2: We Um, built a website like that once where you could go up and down, but also to the sides. And it felt like you could really get lost. And then you would need like directions to go back to the homepage.
0: (laughs) I'm going to make that after this call. I'm going to make this little troll site and I'm going to put Kelly's name all over it because she was my inspiration.
1: Aw, I'm So honored. that's your portfolio? Or? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's now my portfolio.
0: I work at important companies. I know how to code. Um, all right. So now that I'm done being weird, um, Kelly, what don't you tell us about You're done being weird? For the next five minutes. <laughs> <Okay>.
1: um, <laughs> Speaking um, of next five minutes, let's go into tip number eight. <laughs> Which, what a segue. <laughs> Thank you. I'm really good at that. Uh, provide alternatives for time-based content, if it's like video content or audio content. So closed captioning and transcripts for audio po- content. If you're ro- hosting a podcast, please create transcripts.
0: And also, I just want to plug this. I'm going to let Wendy speak in a second because she ha- has an absurd amount of knowledge on this, working at a time-based media company. Um, but we as a podcast use otter.ai to automatically transcribe all of our episodes. And then what we do is we put them up on GitHub, we merge in our pull requests, and we link to them on every show. And then what's nice is the community can go in and edit, because um, you know, it's just an automated translation tool, so you will get mistakes, but it's still, it's better than nothing. Better than nothing.
2: Yeah. So whenever you provide any content that's um, auditive or visual, you want to provide the other one as well. So if you provide something that's a video, you want to provide um, captions or um, transcript as well, and if you're really fancy, you can also think about sign language interpretation. So if you really want to cover all bases, think about something that is written that can be read by a screen reader or someone that just prefers to read. Um, offer something that is video based so that, for example, could be sign language interpretation um, or you just offer the audio directly. And if you have at least two two of them, you're usually yeah, have a good It's like coverage. the compliment.
0: It's the compliment of your primary media source. You need, if you have audio, you need visual. Um, did you see too on the iOS 14 release that on group FaceTimes now, if they can detect someone's doing sign language, they'll move them to the front of the screen. Yeah, super cool.
2: Yes, I was super excited when I saw that feature. And that's also something we uh, sometimes hear about as requests about our uh, video meeting tools. Is like mostly it only reacts to the voice to um show the the speaker and what if someone using sign language it's not detected so that's definitely a feature I was waiting for and I'm I'm super keen to to hear that That's
1: so cool. I wonder how that was done. Just like the technology behind it.
2: Motion detection and I guess like yeah.
0: I think they AI. definitely have Yeah, they have AI that can detect sign language now, Like because they're playing around with auto captioning on sign language participants, which is really neat. I'm curious if that's open source or not.
2: Yeah, that's a whole lot of different um, space and super interesting to think about how can you um, perfectly integrate someone who's uh, dependent on sign language into a meeting where they want to watch a speaker, then they all want to watch the slides, and they also want to watch the um, sign language interpretation. So there is so much space for innovation, and I think AI will will help a lot to really make stuff accessible and easy to communicate.
0: The first conference talk I ever gave was React Girls in London, and they had live captioning as well as a sign language interpreter, I believe, maybe not, but they definitely had live captioning, which is super cool. And I feel like, especially now that we're in the age of virtual conferences, um, please look into that as an option because live captioning is super useful. Also, I just want to say too, the auto-generated transcript that I've seen are uh, absurdly funny sometimes like the things <laughs> that they think that you're saying um,
1: especially when you get into like technical terms it gets real or creative. you speak yeah. another language
2: <laughs> <So> <laughs> you funny. should see our English transcripts of German conversations <laughs> which I think also relates to to accessibility because you always want to make sure that if there's another language on your page that you define the language of like a word or a phrase or um, I don't know, a short piece of text, because it will sound really weird when a screen reader will try to, I don't know, read something French and English.
0: <laughs> I would love to hear that just for shits and giggles. But let's let's move into our last tip. Um, this is one that I see all over the interweb. And this is not relying on form placeholders, mm-hmm. use labels. Um, Wendy, can you explain why it's it can be harmful to users when we rely solely on placeholders.
2: Yeah, I think it ties back into the whole focus thing and all of us multitasking like crazy and you start putting something into a form, maybe do something in between or get lost and then you come back and you have no idea because the label disappeared. And um, yeah, you don't know what the form is expecting of you to fill in.
0: I wonder if someone's ever built the worst website, like they explicitly tried to build the worst website in the world. Um Worst website in the world. WWW. Okay, I'm gonna go look for a domain after we're done recording today because I think that's funny. Um, but no, like imagine. Can you imagine a website where like you're trying to complete a task and like, uh, like everything's moving and you're getting toast notifications and like your UI is changing color. Like, oh my goodness, that'd be such a fun little like horrible project. One
1: of my favorite ones is entering in your phone number where it's like a start-stop timer and you have to stop it at the right time to enter in the, the, the correct number. Have you ever seen that? Well, no. Oh yeah, it exists. Again, it's it's on that same line of intentionally bad user experiences. Yeah, there's like some good ones out
0: there. Yeah, what are some other funny like? Uh, I've I've had this issue a lot, especially moving to two foreign countries now uh, and trying to fill out forms and stuff. Like, I get so frustrated when they tell me that like, um, like my my phone number is not a valid format, or like, oh, I get so angry every time I see a form validation that's like, um, your name is not a real name because it's
1: too short or it's too long. That that one, I was just going to call it specifically, like, yeah, the, your your last name being two characters means that it's not actually a real last name, for example, is
2: not cool. Even happened to me with three letters. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's painful. And it's, um, I think also it ties in well, again, with accessibility that you want to have like real great and clear error validation and feedback and like you actually want prevent users from getting that info after the fact that they put in something like a name or a phone number. If there's anything, any limitations or clear like guidelines, then give them upfront, like with passwords. So you don't want to yeah. learn afterwards that it's missing this one sign and this one letter or it's one too short. Tell them beforehand and help them succeed and not just constantly force them to go back and create all this frustration and forms are already frustrating from the start. So Let's not make it worse. Phone so number forms in
1: particular, like if they require like a certain format for like the the area code for U.S. numbers being in parentheses and then having a hyphen later, but they make you enter that in yourself. And they don't actually, oh, they just yeah. they just tell you that the form fails unless you enter it into a very specific
2: format. Yeah, or try to enter a foreign number in American. Uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, form.
0: I have this problem, too, because I still have bank accounts in the U.S. and I don't have a U.S. number. Um, And even if I were to – like, I tried to buy a Skype number just to have one for all of these two-factor authentications. And they're like, it won't even accept it. Not only that, I was um, buying a camera online the other day. And I was filling out my zip code. And Swedish zip codes, it's like three digit or two two digits, space, three digits. Um, but that space is evidently very important because I filled <laughs> out the whole form and I clicked submit. It was like, please enter your zip code in a valid format. And I'm like, "You, why can't you parse like a, a zip code without a space? Like, I just, I don't get it. I don't get it. I think that's another just thing. just not
1: valid. Form labels, especially if you have an international audience, they use different name conventions for like a zip code versus a postal code. Like having that kind of, uh, the 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 language the choice of language being upfront as well.
0: Oh, we could go off on this. I have, yeah. I think as like someone living in a foreign country, I've experienced so many headaches. Yeah, just everything. I mean, like this makes me so mad because uh, going back to my bank accounts, like I I have very prominent banks that I use, and let me tell you, th- some of them do not accept foreign numbers. So I have to add my mom's phone number. The one that does add a foreign number, you can't get two-factor authentication to. And there's no other way to get two-factor authentication like through your email. So anytime I want to do anything with my bank account, I have to have make sure my mom's awake and that she can tell me what my code is. It is horrifying. I'm like, you're an international bank where you, it's a travel card. And i like, I'm not the kind of person to like get pissed off at someone who's working or whatever. And I always preface my conversation to them as like, this isn't personal, but I'm just venting because, you know, you're a travel card and like, I should be able to use you abroad, but like, I can't enter. And I just like totally went off on them and I felt really bad about it. Um, But let me tell you, you know, you got to make your stuff accessible.
2: So which country had the worst forms?
1: <laughs> that's, that's a good question. Which have you, uh, from your experience, which has had the worst forms? Capital One. I can't, I can't, well, not
0: the worst forms, but, like, the worst policies for, like, making yourself accessible. What's weird to me is, like, they accept my foreign address, like, they'll send me mail internationally, but, like, they won't accept my foreign (laughs) phone number. So, it's just, like, inconsistencies with um, grabbing data from your users. I mean, we don't think about that and how that even in and of itself makes certain aspects inaccessible to people. But yeah that was I was not happy about that. <laughs> In any case let's wrap things up let's let's just mention a couple tools um, if you are looking to just very quickly test out some of the code that you're writing, um, there are a couple tools that you can use to do so. Google Lighthouse is one. It's very easy. You just like open Chrome. Um, you run, you know, a search on your page. It can be your local dev environment, too, and it'll give you a little bit of a report. Um, just be aware it doesn't catch everything. There are some high-level quick wins. Um, there's also Axe, which is an accessibility tool, um, and Color Contrast Checker from the W. I don't know. It's one of the acronyms. It might be WCAG. It might be W3C. Not super sure, but we're going to link all these in the show notes for you to check out. You know, the thing is people hear accessibility and they think it's boring or not interesting, but like it's important and it can be very interesting if like this conversation for me was very interesting. I enjoyed it.
2: I agree. I really appreciate that you guys invited me and I agree that accessibility is really not a, a boring topic. And I nowadays I rather see it as inclusion. It's yeah, just make sure it's something you do from the start. Just focus on building a product that's usable and accessible to everyone of your users, and have fun learning about like all these um, stories and experiences. And yeah, don't feel limited. Rather see it as a as a challenge and opportunity to build a really kick ass product. I
1: love that, especially the, the, seeing it as a challenge in particular. Awesome. So. Let's just wrap things up talking about shout outs. Uh, Kelly, what's your shout out for this week? So my shout out is uh, one of my pandemic purchases was buying an exercise bike. I did not buy a Peloton because I don't like spending that much money. So I got a Schwinn IC4, which was $800 versus $2,400. And I just used my iPad to stream the Peloton app, which is $12 a month. And it's the amazing hack going like around the circle. The only difference is that I don't get to join on the, like the leaderboard or whatever, but I just passed 25 rides on my bike using the Peloton app. So that's my shout out. Good job, me. That's amazing. Wendy, how about you? Do you have
0: a
2: shout out for this week? I was not prepared for a shout out.
0: <laughs> Come on, it could be a person. It could be a book. It could be a
2: place you've been to. You've been on lots of fun trips. Give a country a shout out. A country. Oh my God, yes. It's a, That's a bit of don't tell anyone it's the first time i've been to austria in august even though it's our neighboring country but i guess i always thought um i can still visit those when i'm old and don't want to sit on planes anymore so (laughs) yes it actually was my first time in austria and it was amazing and fantastic and the landscape is breathtaking and i'll definitely be back and hike all the i love austria and i don't know
1: if you ski but i Relearned to ski in Austria a couple of years ago, and it was one of my favorite trips that I've ever taken.
2: I can only imagine.
1: Oof. I want to shout out to Max Stroiber, who lives in Austria. That's not my shout out for the
0: week, but he's the only, <laughs> he's the only Austrian I know. So, like, shout out.
2: Um, Wait, okay. you're
0: getting two so shout out? Wow, cheating the system. <laughs> nah. Um, anyway, uh, so mine is that I'm at my Goodreads goal for the year. Um, I've read 50 books so far this year. Um, for me, that's not a lot. Um, but I've been reading a lot of hefty big books. Like I just finished A Little Life and uh, another 500 page book called The Fountain of Silence, I believe. Um, Really, really awesome. I like to read. I don't have a social life, um, but yeah, anyway, that is this week's episode. Uh, I want to thank you again, Wendy, for joining us. Um, I'm congratulations on now completing your first podcast experience.
2: Woo-hoo! super appreciate being here and that was definitely fun and happy to be back, especially with the two of you. Super cool. Yay.
0: Oh my God, stop. I'm going to cry. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, make sure to go follow Winnie on Twitter. Um, she is getting into the Twitter game and she always retweets great accessibility content and also top-level tweets great accessibility content. Um, if you like this episode, tweet about it. We read everything that you post um, and this week we're giving away a license to Friend end masters where you can take a course on accessibility and much more. We also post new podcasts every Monday. So make sure to subscribe to be notified and leave us a review. And with that, have a great week.
1: Bye.
2: Bye bye.